Hey, what's up, friends? Mike Myers here with the Songwriting for Guitar podcast, episode number 15, Chris Ballou. He's best known for being the lead singer and songwriter for the Presidents of the United States of America. We talk about the millions of records he sold, playing in Beck's band, being friends with Weird Al, developing Casper Baby Pants. The, the stories Chris has are countless. So you know what? Whatever you're doing right now, hit the pause button, because this episode you got to listen to now. So here we go. We're not going to wait. Episode 15, Chris Ballou. I am super interested in your journey because to me, it's fascinating. Um, you know, your starts at, you know, and correct me if I'm wrong, one of your early roommates in LA, you know, I want to go back to when you started, but yeah. am I right in saying it's back was a roommate for a little bit? Well, I, it was more like I was his roommate. I met him <laughs> in Seattle and he asked me to join his band when, so he got signed and he didn't have a band and he had to create one. And we met in Seattle and we hit it off and uh, he called a few days later and invited me to uh, join his band, which is the short version of the story. And so I was the only band member not from Los Angeles. So he let me live with him uh, at his place in Pasadena while we rehearsed for the tour. And then we did two U.S. tours. And yeah, so it was it was a great experience. Uh, I mean, there's a lot to it, but that's the basic answer. Oh, my goodness. OK, so let's let's backtrack. Let's go let's go to Seattle. Let's go all the way. Okay. Um, okay. <laughs> now, what was your start in music, especially like, was, was it, was songwriting and just guitar? Was it just like, were you just, you know, pop out of the womb and it was like, just naturally you were drawn to it? Yeah, it seems so. Um, I think I just had some sort of synesthesia, uh, early on where, uh, music made me feel really, really good. Um, when I was two and a half, my brother, my older brother, who's uh, 17 years older than me, gave my parents uh, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band for their uh, as a Christmas present. And they didn't, they just filed it away with their Andy Williams and Don Ho records and didn't really <laughs> pay attention. But I dragged it out and listened to it over and over and over. And so that that's like the first early sense memory I have of connecting with music. And that album was so visual and so um, it was almost like a kid's record in a way because every song was so like uh, visual, like a video, like a movie went off in my mind when I heard the songs. And that sort of informed how I in turn grew up and wrote songs. I, I love songs that paint a picture and tell a story and make you travel. And I credit that early experience with that idea and that sensation. So that's kind of when it started. What an album to be, you know, that combination of pictures, because you can just look at the cover and yeah. just like stare it for hours. And I, I still do. And then you're right. The, 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 the style of the songs, I think of Mr. Kite and that buildup of the, the carousel music. That is, a, I, I think, a fantastic intro to music because you can't beat the Beatles. And then so was that just like the fascination where it just kind of like developed where you kind of chased after, I guess, that fascination? Yeah, really. I mean, for years I listened to that record. I didn't even know there were other Beatles records and I didn't even really know there were other bands. I was just like, this is music, you know? <laughs> uh, and then another distinct memory is learning the theme song to a television show called The Munsters. Um, it was oh, like this. Okay. I, I loved um, kind of, I loved you, you name checked being for the benefit of Mr. Kite. That was one of the ones I really loved because it was scary. I loved yeah. kind of spooky stuff. And so the Munsters theme was the first song I learned by ear on piano. 
And so, yeah, it just became like, I want, I hear something I like, I want to grab it and make it my own and play it over and over again and swim in those waters. So that kind of is where the urge to uh, sort of grab the ghost of a song out of the air and then fixate it to a, uh, or uh, affix it to a medium really was born with Sergeant Peppers and the Munsters. <laughs> I love that. So piano was kind of like the intro instrument and I, and that's awesome. Did, when did guitar slowly, did you kind of like piecemeal other instruments and not just piano, but just like slowly put them together as a way of musical expression? No, it was really just piano from the time I was about four to 14, I was kind of being groomed to be a concert pianist in a way. I mean, it, I remember feeling or hearing adults talking like, okay, let's get him on to the next level. And, you know, kind of, I felt like I was being sort of ushered into a, a life that I didn't understand. But a- eventually after, you know, years and years of playing uh, piano, I picked up my dad's acoustic guitar and found how to make an E chord and strummed a full E chord and went, Oh man, that is so much better. (laughs) (laughs) That's so much better. There's so much more richness in this experience than, you know, playing dead people music on piano. (laughs) Not that, you know, I did play Joplin and, and some stuff I loved like in the hall of the mountain King by Grieg. I remember learning that. And that's another scary one that boom, 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 boom. So, um, I had a pleasant experience with piano, but it definitely uh, like music sort of turned on when I strummed that big old E chord on the acoustic guitar. And then of course I discovered electric guitar and that was even better. And I was off to the races. Now at that point, when you're, you, you pick up the electric guitar, do you start forming bands and just like, you know, cause I feel like at first everybody kind of forms you know, nobody stays in one band forever. It's kind of like these bands kind of form and then a member leaves and then eventually it kind of like, I don't know, it just gels. And that's how you kind of learn about songwriting a little bit. Yeah, that's exactly how it goes. You know, you just, I mean, at first I, I, my first band was ridiculously weird. Um, (laughs) It was me. Okay. So it was this guy, Arnie on bass. And he was a, just a, a genius on the bass, you know, like a, a child prodigy, just co- totally could play. This guy, Dennis Sway on guitar. He was a Hawaiian guy playing like a distorted SG guitar. And then I, I lay down on the ground and I played a tiny little Casio VL tone, which is basically like a calculator that's also a keyboard. And I took half of a headphone and I put it on the speaker of the keyboard and I tapped that for the drums and I sang into it for the vocals and I played the little Casio keyboard all at the same time while lying on the floor <laughs> because we had no, you know, keyboard stands, mic stands, really no PA at all. And so, yeah, it's these two guys standing up and me on the floor and we had one song and but we thought we were in a band, you know, it's like the classic, uh, you know, the, the, the band where it's like drums, guitar, and a clarinet, because that's the only mm-hmm. instrument that the kid can play, you know? Anyway. What was the song title? Do you remember? Well, it's a little un PC now, but we were called I- spastic action. And <laughs> after the, after the, uh, Rolling Stones song satisfaction, we were called spastic. Action. <laughs> And I Can't Get No Spastic Action was one of our songs. And then actually we had two songs. We had that and then we had this song. Um, God, what was it called? I actually think I have it 
here. Hold oh on. Oh my goodness. Spastic that is amazing. Action. Oh, useless information. That's right. Here, <laughs> listen. Here it is. I don't know if you. Well, wait. Okay. I have to unplug the headphones. <laughs> so that that is amazing. that's it and that was me you can hear dun 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 that's me tapping the headphones and singing and and you can hear the little keyboard in the background so yeah it was trying to be like a punk rock band but i think in retrospect it was more punk rock than a lot of things i've seen in my life then i guess here's it so it's it's almost like that's a time for experimentation at what point did you put the calculator down and then well, it, slowly yeah. We, there's no way we were going to do a gig like that. So it became pretty obvious at early on. And then I bought a guitar, you know, from a kid at school for a hundred bucks. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it, it, you know, just tried to be the Sex Pistols for the next two years. But, uh, and the Clash, I was just into like, you know, punk rock, classic punk rock from the late seventies. Um, yeah. And just, you know, just tried to do that punk rock thing. And then eventually kind of the, the, my personality as sort of a visual songwriter started coming out because I realized, I think deep down, like I can't really, you know, grow up in suburbia and be in a real punk rock band because that's just not me. And so I just started kind of writing these. I I did write these kind of angsty songs about growing up in suburbia, uh, but they were more arty. I got into like, uh, you know, uh, English art, new wave kind of stuff. And so they were kind of flowery and, and I, uh, <laughs> I embarrassingly probably sang with like a fake English accent for a while there in the eighties. And, <laughs> Oh man, I mean, I have, I have tons of recordings that nobody will ever hear because they're just so embarrassing. Now, do, do you feel like the style of how you viewed playing the guitar and writing songs kind of changed from like, and you know, kind of like from that punk rock standpoint to eventually like, okay, I'm going to, you know, maybe, change a little bit dynamically how I play or some of the chord voicings that I choose? Uh, yeah, well, it was interesting. Early on, I didn't like doing bar chords. I couldn't really figure out, I couldn't like get a bar chord to work for me and I was impatient. So I figured out how to play this funny C-based bar chord where it was like root fifth and then a, and then the net, uh, what was it? It was like root fifth and then I would skip the next string and then there was the third and then, you know, and the B and the E would yeah. kind of, or the B string would always ring out because I wasn't fingering it. So I would come up with these crazy weird chords. And then I took the low E string off and I played an A bar chord, which is basically just like clamping your finger almost straight across. So that was an early in, uh, indication of where I would in, end up, which is playing two and three string guitars that are tuned, you know, root, fifth, root, straight across. So you can just put your finger straight across and make a chord. But at the time, I just did it because I was impatient and I wanted it to sound good, but I didn't want to practice. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> oh and I still goodness. to this day can't play a regular bar chord. I play this. Here, actually, hold on. I'll, I'll grab a guitar here. I'll show you what I mean. I, I, I happen to have a rare six string guitar here in my world. So, <laughs> there's a C. So, my bar chord would be like here's a on a, what, what would that be? A G or an A? And then skip that one. Yeah. And that B is ringing out. So it's like. Oh. So you get this like weird kind of dissonant thing happening a little bit. And anyways, to this day, that's my screwed up bar chord. I can kind of like cram my hand 
there's a real bar chord, but that took me all that time to make it. So, <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's interesting how you kind of stumble on things of a desire or necessity to just be like, ah, you know, what? I'm just going to do this. Like, I don't think at any point in Keith Richards' career, I'm sure there are people who are like, do you want us to maybe put the six string right, like right. on there for you, Keith? Like right up top, and he's not going to be like, oh, you know what? Maybe <laughs> he's like, no, this is working for me. I'm not, I'm going to go with it now. I'm curious. So as you're developing, you're doing these bands and you're, you're, how do you uh, come across back? Do you guys just kind of meet as friends and just playing in bands, neutral, you know, bands passing by? Well, no, it was kind of an intentional meeting. So when I lived in Boston, I was uh, acquainted with and was in a band with this uh, girl named Mary Lou Lord. And that was fun. And we played on the street and we played in clubs and, and then, uh, Years later, I got a call from her saying, hey, I share a publicist with this guy named Beck, and he just got signed, and he needs to put together a band, and I thought of you to be in his band, and so we're coming to Seattle. Uh, he's He was doing like a residency tour up and down the West Coast, kind of doing multiple shows in different cities, and he came to Seattle, and Mary Lou introduced me to him, and I watched him play an acoustic set and talk about movies going off in my head. I don't think I had as many movies going off since I was two and a half listening to Sgt. Pepper's. I mean, his songs just made all these images, you know, snap, crackle, pop through my brain. And I told him so afterwards, and I think we bonded on that idea of writing songs that make your mind turn on. So one thing led to another, and I, yeah, my audition was going to Olympia and playing on one of his records, playing slide guitar, which he was looking for a slide guitarist. I had no idea how to play slide guitar. I didn't own a slide or a guitar that could be a slide guitar. So I actually, before I got on the bus to go to Olympia, I went to a music store. I bought an old harmony and a slide, and I went right to the bus station. I got on the bus, went right to Olympia, got off the bus, walked to Calvin Johnson's house, went into the basement, immediately into the recording booth, and they said, play slide on this song. And I had no idea. <laughs> I'd never heard the song. <laughs> I didn't know how to play slide guitar. But, you know, he wasn't looking for proficiency. He was looking for vibe and kind of like a kind of like a homemade slapdash approach, not kind of, you know, hunting and pecking is what he was after. And I definitely was hunting and pecking. So anyway, that's, we, so we were, it was kind of an arranged meeting that turned into a, uh, uh, me being his, in his band for the first two U S tours and living with him in LA and, and kind of, uh, watching him undergo the transformation from, uh, you know, bedroom four tracker to, international superstar and uh sort of we talked about that transformation a lot and then when it came time for me to do that with the presidents i felt like i had been to fame school with beck and so i <laughs> it was a perfect uh sequence of events really so it was kind of it's kind of magical now that to me is number one super fascinating that's like slide guitar sure yeah. it's that boldness of just being like yeah I, I absolutely I can do that and then it's like okay I gotta get a slide <laughs> and, and it's just to, to just go and be like hey are you ready to track you bet yeah right yeah uh, here we go but like what you touched on feel and vibe I feel especially for songwriting and when you're playing guitar is super important if it is not there if feel and vibe is like not there you could be absolutely proficient and amazing it feels dead yeah yeah it fit you know it just doesn't feel real yeah, that's one of the things I love about recording in the digital realm is that you can take, like oftentimes I will take 
an old recording um, that's sort of, you know, from a four track that's kind of not exactly right, but it's got the vibe. And I'll throw that into a Pro Tools session and cut it, uh, you know, into a loop and then you or, or just play to it and then eventually remove the old recording. But I've hijacked the feeling of the old recording and I've kind of got that. Or sometimes I keep, you know, bits and pieces of the old recording in there. There's a song on my uh, one of my later latest Casper records called Termite. And it's me playing this, um, me way back in like 1990 or 91, playing this uh, Doombeck, this drum where you put your hand in it and change the uh, tone of it. And I just did this jam with the Doombeck, you know, whatever. And then, you know, 30 years later, I was listening to it while doing the dishes, which I, I listened to these old fragments while I do chores. And it popped out at me and I suddenly imagined like an army of termites walking across a, 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 a field about to devour a house and suddenly a song was born. So it's cool because you can also use that sloppiness and that moment of inspiration to actually create something finished as well. I find that that's such a good idea to like listen to, you know, like things that are older, you know, segments, song clips while you're doing random things to see like if they strike you differently. Yeah, that's how Lump, uh, the president's hit song Lump was written was that was me cleaning my room, listening to a little micro cassette recorder full of ideas. And I heard myself singing. She's Lump. She's Lump. She's in my head. I do not remember making it up. I no, really? I don't, oh my goodness. but I, okay. I had the chorus on this little micro cassette thing. And I remember thinking, you know, it was just, it pricked my ears like, Ooh, what's that? That's yeah. That's definitely yeah. me singing, but that's, I don't remember making that up. And then I wrote the verses and, you know, borrowed a, I didn't even own a four track at that time. I had to borrow one from my neighbor, my neighbor who coincidentally was Lori Goldston, who played cello for Nirvana on the MTV unplugged special, which is weird. Her four track is the one I borrowed where I, and recorded all the hits for the presidents because I somehow didn't own a four track at the time. So that to me is just like number one. That that is so cool. The fact that again you're just listening to things and you're like, oh, what's that? Yeah, yeah. I like that. I I and to me sometimes I think people, especially now when they're writing songs. They're bummed if they're just like, ah, I don't have a song. But it's like maybe those clips later on suddenly strike you. It's just like, don't get rid of yeah, yeah. <laughs> your ideas because maybe they didn't in the moment in a right didn't form. But it's like, give it time and maybe something's going to strike you differently. Yeah, it's true. And you never know. You know, I've gone through so many different phases of styles and genres uh, and different bands and finally landing on kids music. But um, along the way, if I have an idea for a straight up country Western song, I just write it and record it and file it away. Cause who knows, maybe in another 20 years, I'm in a country band and they, okay. You know, <laughs> you just don't know. And sometimes when those things happen, they are glimpses into the future of yeah. like, maybe you're tapping something in your imagination that's eventually going to bear fruit, but you just can't see it at the time. So my advice would be record everything I mean, I have thousands and thousands of fragments. And for the last few Casper albums, I went through all those fragments and kind of did that listening, kind of casual listening thing. And several really good songs were plucked from, uh, you know, the Dusty Depths. The Dusty. Now, that's a good album title for your future yeah, country dusty album in 20 years. <laughs> dusty. Yeah, the Dusty Depths. Really hard to say. <laughs> So when you graduated from, let's say, Beck School, and it's just kind of moved, and you moved in, and you, you know, you're, you're writing Lump, 
at did was there kind of a moment when you realized like this album's doing really well when it just kind of hits you where like you put it together and then it comes out and then you're like wow this is like did you have in your mind that it was going to be big or was it just like did it take you a little bit by surprise uh very much by surprise i i have a distinct memory of finishing a rehearsal and going to get into dave Dieterer's car who's the guitar player and over the roof of the car as he gets in the driver's side and i get in the passenger side he says you know, if somebody wanted to pay us a bunch of money to sign with a major label and tour all over the world and play these songs and make videos, I'd totally do it. And I said out loud, me too, while thinking in my mind, you are insane. Nobody is going to pay us any money to play these silly, stupid little songs, you know, and which was fine with me. I was completely content just being, you know, uh, playing a couple, you know, four times a month in Seattle uh, as a, just a thing to make life interesting. So um, I guess flash forward to actually getting signed and having all the experiences we did, it it seemed improbable at its very core to me. It seemed, which kind of made it seem unsafe and weird and uh, something that wasn't a destination that I wanted to kind of hang out in for a long time. I always felt like there was something else I was supposed to be doing when the presidents were really hitting it big. But I do remember when the album sold over a million copies and that felt like a moment where like, okay, this is actually happening. And then when we would get up, you know, after making videos for MTV and then going on tour and having at that time, the crowd had this sort of like um, part to play in the show because they were watching other crowds on MTV freak out like Pearl Jam live videos and stuff like that. So the crowd was just like, another band member basically they were going crazy the whole time so that was another moment where i was like oh wow we're this is a force that's bigger than us now i talked to uh, a few weeks ago jim west who plays guitar for weird oh yeah what was what was the um experience do you you feel like it's something when it's like you write a you know a hit song but then when you get the call that like hey weird al wants to parody your song what is that like? Well, apparently, <laughs> apparently, <laughs> and I don't remember this, but I think it, you know, I don't remember how I found out that he wanted to cover it, but Al and I are still really good friends. And um, I was asked this question the other day, like, what, where, you know, where were you when you saw the video for Gump the first time? And I couldn't remember. And I asked Al, like, well, did we, what happened when that video came out? Did we talk about it or anything? And he's like, dude, you were on my tour bus. I played you the video. <laughs> he remembers it because it was the only time he ever debuted a video for the artist in person. So we were on his tour bus apparently, and he played me the video and we talked about it and hung out and all that stuff. But I have no memory of it, <laughs> which is just a testament to all the things there are to forget in life. No. If you don't remember Weird but, Al debuting the video in which he plays you on his tour bus, then I don't know. I don't know what else I'm forgetting. <laughs> well, th- that to me, now that's even cooler, that the story of Weird Al telling you the story mm-hmm. of him playing you the yeah. music video is just a really cool, that in itself. Now, eventually how, now I knew you from the presidents of the United States, but at first I did not make the connection as a teacher uh, I had a student, shout out to Griffin, to give him full credit for this. He came in and he had this three-string guitar 
and he said he wanted to learn Butterfly Driving a Truck. And I was like, okay. I was like, is that the name of the song? And he was like, yes. And I was like, are you sure? I was like, that's a very, okay, well, let's see. I was like, Casper Baby Pants. I was like, okay. And I played the song and I was like, this is good. And I was like, I wonder who this guy is. And I was like, oh, what? (laughs) How? Okay. So now I guess. Yeah. How did you make that transition? Was there to Casper Baby Pants, kind of like the alter ego, which... How did that come about? Well, it kind of goes back to the little kid listening to Sgt. Pepper's. I mean, the experience I had in my mind was so vivid and so real and so innocent and just just sort of like elemental. And I always, throughout my life, for some reason, my drive has always been to make music that represents who I am uh, 100% transparently. Like, I don't want to have to put on, say, like kiss makeup or a suit, a special outfit, metaphorically or otherwise, to go on stage and do my thing. I don't want to have to, like, cloak myself in a persona. And the presidents were really close, but there was a little bit of, like, sort of adult wink, wink, sort of, you know, innuendo in that music that wasn't something that I felt like super. Uh, close to, I felt close to the innocent part, like kitties and peaches and lumps and froggies and all that. But then that extra layer of adult theme was something that I didn't really have a handle on or felt like it was really me. So Casper was really just this realization that, oh, I can remove that adult innuendo part and just be the innocent part and still write the same kinds of songs and still write visual songs and silly songs. And uh, when I realized that, it just felt like a big weight was lifted off and I felt this clarity. And then the volcano of ideas just started erupting. And I'm, I just, you know, uh, in May, I released my 17th Casper album and they have about 20 songs on them. So they're not, uh, they're not short albums. <laughs> and I've got two more full length records. I've got uh, one coming out in November. And then the other one, I think I'm going to sit on until the pandemic is over and we can actually all get together. So that'll bring me to 19 records, which I think is is the uh, extent of my legacy. Uh, we'll see. But um, yeah, so it was really about uncovering and uh, sort of who I was already, this like innocent story-based uh, songwriter. And once I found it, it was, you know, just really relaxing and exciting. Now, is it kind of the same process as you're describing where sometimes you'll just go through those clip ideas does it ever start with you just picking up your guitar and then just kind of like being like, hmm, you know, with those, you know, the three strings? I think I saw, I forget which video I saw you playing. I think it was, oh, I think it was uh, Tiny, oh, shoot. Tiny Explosions? Um, it was, yes. And I saw I saw a picture of you playing guitar. Yeah. And it was just like three strings. Right. So it's just like, is that kind of like pretty much all instruments that you have at this point? You know, like three. What is a process of recording a song like uh, Casper Baby Pants, <laughs> like any from the album? What is it like the process for you to like sort out the ideas and then start? Tracking? It's a long process for most songs, um, it, even if it isn't a long process for writing. The recording is a long process because I do it alone. So one of the things I learned from being in a band is that I'm not supposed to be in a band, that I have a I have a vision and I've always kind of felt like the band, like drums, bass, guitar, vocal, it's like primary colors. And th- those are great. It's like red, yellow, blue, maybe green. But 
I and those you know people that work with those colors, it's great and fantastic. But I really wanted to use every color in the paint box. I wanted to use strings and uh, classical instruments, uh, you know, hillbilly instruments, uh, electric guitars, acoustic guitars, horns, you know, anything I could get my hands on. I wanted to not be limited that way. So um, yeah, being solo really helps. So it, with, in, with that in mind, the process that I worked out is. I'll take a moment of inspiration, whether it's picking up a guitar, whether it's a, a song idea that a kid sends me, which happens sometimes, or finding an old song in my library that's unfinished that sparks a new idea. I'll just go for it. I'll write it, you know, write more verses than I need usually. And kind of, you know, the writing process is like no bad ideas, just keep it going, keep it going, and then kind of find the story and the lyrics. And somewhere in there, I'll start recording the actual thing in uh, Pro Tools. And the early stages are uninhibited. Like I just throw everything I want on there, like distorted guitar, you know, mandolin, banjo, whatever. And then much later, I'll listen to the song and I'll do uh, a mute party where I'll just start muting things like, okay, let's get rid of that electric guitar, except maybe in this one little moment where it's kind of cool. And so I'll just sculpt by taking away and then eventually I take enough away that the song is very clear and, and uh, the lyrics are very available for young ears to hear. I'm always very conscious about making the story and the lyrics up front and the music is there to support and letting the music be complex enough in some cases that the parents and the older siblings can be entertained, but letting the lyrics be simple enough that a kid uh, zero to six year old can grab it or vice versa. I let the music be really simple. So a zero to six year old can grab it and the lyrics get more complex so that the parents and the older kids are taken care of. So I kind of allow these like, uh, you know, different elements to balance depending on what the song requires and how a family stuck in a traffic jam in a car with a two year old and a seven year old (laughs) are going to experience it. So, um, there's just a lot of, modification, remixing, balancing. So it starts out really sloppy and then it gets very precise as the song goes on. But that process can take anywhere from three months to years and years. I mean, I have some songs on this record I'm putting out in November that I recorded, uh, you know, four or five years ago. And it's taken that long to kind of understand how they're really supposed to be represented. So it's patience. That is... That is, to me, especially when you said, I feel like when I record too and when I'm mixing things and I'm putting together, it is a takeaway party. It's like, what can I take away? It's just like, it's just not necessary because it's not about, people are like, oh, do you add more stuff? It's like, uh uh-uh, it's it's taking away until where it's just like, that actually feels a lot better. Yeah, I can't tell you the amount of times I've like, tracked a bunch of guitars thinking they were the backbone of the song and then put on, put on a bass and a little percussion. And then I'll get rid of all the guitars and it's just bass and percussion. I'm like, Oh, there it is. There's the song. Now this is this, your story at the beginning of you being influenced by, you know, you know, the, the experiencing the Beatles makes sense because you have baby Beatles yeah. in which you cover. It's just like, Oh, this is, it comes full circle. Now were those selections of songs, just ones that you felt were the, the, you know, it's kind of like a a whole bunch from their catalog, yeah. but to me, like too, like how do you how do you license a Beatles song well, and go through that process? Yeah, it was a learning experience for sure uh, on a lot of levels. I mean, there's two Beatles. I did two. I did Baby Beatles and Beatles Baby, and uh, I had a, f- a couple criteria. Number one, 
they had to have written the song. So I didn't do songs where they were covering someone else's stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, number two, it had to be kind of visual, you know, because like, I wanted to pay homage to that kind of uh, paint a picture kind of thing. Or about like uh, love in a universal way, not as much girl, you're, you know, I love you girl, this kind of thing, but more like the kind of love song that could be a parent to child love song. So that kind of narrowed the field. And then I started recording them and that narrowed it further, like the ones that I really resonated with. But unpacking those songs and, and sort of dissecting them and opening them up and getting stripping them down to the bones was very informative as a songwriter, like understanding how they did some key changes and some rhythm changes and like seeing the workings of these songs that I'd lived with for so long was super fun. And then the practicality of, of licensing them was an adventure because George Harrison was on this funny little uh, publishing company called Wixen and they were kind of weird to deal with and Lennon and McCartney were with Harry Fox. And so I had to write a lot of checks to different places. Oh, and Love Me Do, is owned by Yoko Ono. Half Yoko Ono ho- owns half of four of the early Beatles hits, and so I have I have to really? pay half royalties to Yoko and half to Harry Fox. So it was you know it's just a it's an accounting thing. I've got a spreadsheet, and every quarter I have to write little tiny checks t- to the Beatles. <laughs> so um, yeah, so it was it's definitely a learning a learning curve, but I'm really glad I did it because you know. I wanted to pay homage to that connection. And also I get a lot of feedback from families saying that when kids listen to my Beatles records, they think it's actually the Beatles or they think that's what those songs sound like. And then when they hear the real Beatles albums, a lot of times they're like, that's not the Beatles. You know, they think they think I'm uh, the Beatles. I, I can attest to that. <laughs> I, I can attest to that because we've learned obla di obla da. And I remember telling Griffin, I was like, hey, I was like, well, this is this was done by the Beatles. And he was like, no. <laughs> he was like, I did not. And I was like, I was like, here, let me show you. It's off the White Album. And he was like, hmm. Uh, no, no, that is, are they covering? And they thought the Beatles were cut. And it's just like, but I love this because it's an introduction to the Beatles, but it's like, and you're right. The way it's you're you, I feel when people say kids music, they're this like, Oh, but the thought and how you arrange and you give detailed thought into this, but there's like pop sensibility too in your Mm. songs where I can teach one of them. And I know that it's going to be like, I'll be doing chores. And then halfway through the day, it's just like, and then my girlfriend was like, what are you singing? I was like, butterfly. Driving the <laughs> she was like, what's that? And then I remember just sharing the album. So to me, and I love the, the, just the story that we've gone through, how you've just chased after things that you were you either jumped in you know sometimes you jump in with a you know a slide guitar being like here we go let's figure this out and then being like that's a good song maybe that could be a thing and then suddenly you know what i think i need to strip it down to this it seems like you've just chased after the curiosity yeah definitely and um one thing that's really helped is understanding who i'm making the music for and what environment i'm making it for um like i specifically put myself in a car in a traffic jam leaving Yosemite National Park in August and everybody in the car is hot and hungry and tired and mad and they all have to pee and you should be able to put the CD in and it should help. And I will literally sit back and listen to a mix when I think a song is approaching completion and and 
and be in that car and go, oh, no, 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 that mandolin right there is not going to help. Or that <laughs> that hi-hat has too much trouble on it. We got to dial that back. And so I make, yeah, it's a, it's a science in a way, like an emotional science, but kind of a science, um, way more than I ever experienced making music for adults. I think adults are much more forgiving with sloppiness and inarticulate vocals and, you know, general sort of energy being passable as genius, but kids I've found will respond and families will respond to super well-crafted storytelling based, uh, you know, songs of all kinds. I mean, one of the things I really like about how I make music as Casper is I genre hop, you know, like I have one song that's kind of groovy and electronic and one song that's very acoustic and country and then a jazzy thing. And I can go all over the map, um, which I love. So it also, I hope, exposes kids to all those different genres and, uh, you know, exposes them to classical music on some levels and pop and whatever, whatever else I'm channeling. So I like which I think is amazing because it just it's it's showing them a pa- just basically a, 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 so many different palettes of styles to be yeah. like you, it's okay if you end up you're drawn to this cool that's the avenue then go chase after that now be curious it's like you're sending them on their own your, their own curiosity you're kind of giving permission to be like go go for yeah, it yeah 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 and and find out what drives and creates and what all the things that I've done you go find yeah yours. definitely and it can help you figure out what you don't like too like you know I remember as a kid. Uh, I collected uh, Charlie Brown comics in book form. And for some reason, I yeah. didn't like the baseball themed ones. I was just like, I don't want the baseball themed ones. I And I don't know why, but suddenly that popped into my head when you were talking like it can not only show kids the genres they want, but also the ones they don't want. Like, I don't like country music, you know, like <laughs> you can figure that out, you know. Oh, but this, Chris, thank you so much. Like it just hearing your journey, uh, so many cool stories. Uh, I'd love to talk one day more about this. Cause this is, there's, I feel like we're only scratching the surface. If there's, there's bound oh, to be more. Oh, it's true. I mean, I have a lot of theories about why this kind of music is important for the empathetic parent child relationship, which I feel is how we're going to save the world, which is making babies that grow up feeling supported and taken care of. And, me making this music is just like participating in that in a small way, but a way, you know, that I've found to make it, you know, anyway, the bottom line is I haven't even told you the story about almost crushing Madonna's dog. I mean, there's so many, there's so many. Oh, <laughs> oh my. Oh, that'll my have to goodness. be a cliffhanger. <laughs> I like that. Let's leave that as the cliffhanger. And then next time you're going to explain <laughs> that. Oh my goodness. Well, Chris, Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Can you feel the tension that we just ended right there? That that cliffhanger? (laughs) The tension between Chris, Madonna, Madonna's dog. We're going to have to bring Chris back on because we need to know what happens. I just wanted to take this time right now to say thank you. Thank you for listening every week. Thank you for sending me emails on your favorite episodes, sharing on social media. I read each one. And I'm so excited for the future of this podcast. You know, the episodes we've already recorded, the episodes that we're about to record, I'm super stoked on. So remember, if you are loving these episodes, feel free to write a review on Apple Podcasts, share on your social media platforms, because every single one absolutely helps. 
That does it for this week. Thank you so much for listening. This was Ed In, produced by Chris Fafalius. I'm Mike Myers. Until next time.